Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we've come into your house. Indeed, we are your house. We are living stones built as a temple of God. You indwell your people. You indwell your church. And we have come to this temple to worship and to bow down and to kneel before the Lord our Maker and to remind ourselves that he is Lord and we are his slaves. And oh, Father, how we love to be the slaves of Christ. Help us, Father, now to think clearly about the matter at hand in this text of Scripture. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us by your truth. And for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many generations ago, there was a beautiful garden. In it, God created a man and his wife and gave them his sufficient word. He spoke to them. He told them how to live in the place that he had created for them in a manner that would bless them beyond their wildest, holy imaginations. But the tempter came to them and questioned God's word, doubted God's word, and finally denounced God's word in an effort to separate the original man and woman from their God. And to mankind's everlasting harm, the serpent succeeded in tricking them to give away the treasure of God's word. And fast forward about 1,400 years, and we read the story of how Israel had drifted so far away from God that one, when young King Josiah was set on the throne in Jerusalem, there was not even a single copy of the scriptures known to exist in the world. Not one. And then one day, in 2 Kings 22, one of the priests was cleaning out a storeroom in the temple, and lo and behold, he, he discovered the long-lost book of the law. He discovered the word of God. And when King Josiah read the book of God, he tore his clothes in grief and shame and fear because he realized that God's people were suffering under God's judgment because they had long since discarded the treasure of God's word. We fast forward again to Europe's medieval history. This is a period of Western civilization known as the Dark Ages. And why is it commonly known as the Dark Ages? Well, primarily because they lost the light of the gospel. When Christianity went from being the target of persecution to the official state religion, it didn't take long for the glory of God's word to be replaced with the so-called religious wisdom of power-hungry men. And when Martin Luther inadvertently launched the Great Reformation in 1517, he did so by simply restoring the treasure of the word of God back to its rightful place. The result was the absolute transformation of the Western world. Fast forward again to our day. And we see that the wind and waves of godless culture have continued to hammer the church with its philosophies and religious contrivances and every lofty thing that it raises up against the knowledge of God. 
And many times these demonic forces have actually won the day. If, if you doubt that, then I would suggest you consider just a few historical events. Number one, Yale University was founded to train men for ministry. Where is their devotion to the Word of God now? Harvard University was founded to train young men to be pastors. Where is their devotion to the Word of God now? Princeton University once had a famous president, you'll recognize his name, Jonathan Edwards. I grew up near Princeton, and I can tell you this is a relevant question, where is the Word of God there now? When George Whitfield turned over the leadership of the Methodist movement to John Wesley, it was, for the most part, a movement based on the Pauline and Reformation doctrines of grace. But where is the Methodist church's devotion to the Word of God now? Today in America, a number of Christian colleges are capitulating to the pressures of godless society. And piece by piece, Jewel by jewel, coin by coin, they are surrendering the treasure of Scripture. My friends, it is no hyperbole in our day to suggest that every Bible-believing, Christ-loving, gospel-motivated church in North America is, listen to this carefully, is always only one generation away from losing the treasure of the Word of God. And if you have managed to keep up with what the most recent surveys reveal about professing Christians in America, what they believe, you know that there's, there's a real and present danger to the church. Not from outside necessarily, the outside pressure tends to make us stronger, but from within. And the danger is not that the church might cease to be relevant to the world. Rather, the danger is that we will lose the gospel completely. And once the gospel is gone, the rest of the word of God is gone. We will lose the treasure of God's word. One author, after examining some of the recent religious surveys in the United States, concluded that if the data collected is an accurate representation of what self-professed Christians believe, the church is in serious danger. Because what most people believe, according to the latest data, is not Christianity at all. It may look a little like Christianity. It may have some terms that reflect upon Christianity. It may more accurately be labeled, however, not Christianity, but how about try this on for size, moralistic therapeutic deism. The fundamental tenets of such a religion these religious ideologies, they go something like this. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, see if this sounds like what you believe. Number one, God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over, over human life on earth. Does that resonate with you? Is that true? Or I could put in a couple more words here that are not in the official list. Let me read that again. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth from a distance. It's deism. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, 
the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Is this your theology? I would suggest to you that if this is your theology, you are not a Christian. My friends, that may be what the majority of professing Christians believe today, but listen to me very carefully. That is not biblical Christianity. The doctrinal propositions I just named reveal that such people have already given away the treasure of the Word of God. They may say they love it, but they don't read it. They may say they admire it, but they don't obey it. Paul and Timothy lived in a day that was much like ours, where the winds and waves of public opinion and phony religiosity was tricking people into giving away the treasure of God's word. And most importantly, they were distancing themselves from the gospel. When the pressure of persecution was applied, they, they were ashamed to be associated with a crucified Messiah. If you understand the shame of crucifixion, you'll understand their plight. They were ashamed to call themselves a follower of a teacher who had been publicly condemned by both Jews and Romans. They were mortified that others would discover that their hope for eternal life was in a man who said that he was the promised Christ, but whose life ended with shame and reproach and a borrowed tomb. And such men and women proved to be ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of Christ, and ashamed of his apostle, Paul. These men, like, like in every age, are quick to make a profession of religiosity and equally quick to abandon it when the time is tough. Now, this was nothing new, what happened to Paul. His experience was just like his master's before him, you remember that when Jesus was arrested, he was taken to Caiaphas's prison. He was no doubt chained and imprisoned there, awaiting the sentence of death, just like Paul. And when he was arrested, what did the disciples do? They all abandoned him. Well, with all of this as introduction, let's take a moment to read the text together this morning. Let's stand together and read 2 Timothy chapter 1 beginning with verse 13. <coughs> Second Timothy 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Paul is writing to Timothy, and here's what he says. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phrygilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and, had, and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. 
There are clearly two parts to this text this morning, from the pen of the imprisoned Apostle Paul. They exhort us, number one, to guard the truth courageously, that whole motif of courage will go all the way through this letter. And number two, choose your friends wisely. Number one, guard the truth courageously, verses 13 and 14. Paul's message to Timothy in this first chapter of his final letter is a call to courage in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. And it's a call to loyalty both to Christ and to Paul himself. And that's why he says in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Why was he saying that? Well, because Paul knew that Timothy struggled sometimes with having the courage that was sufficient to meet the need of the moment when he had opportunity to be faithful in sharing the gospel, or when he was at a church that Paul sent him to, Ephesus, for example, where he had to straighten things out. He had to set in order what remained, as Paul told him. And there were problems, and, and he needed to go in and set things right. He often struggled with courage, apparently. When we come to verse 13, then, we need to remind ourselves that Paul knows his time is up. He's about to die. He doesn't know when. But he is in a dungeon, he's in a hole in the ground, basically. He's waiting for the verdict to come through. He's confident that it's going to this time not be that he's innocent and, and released, but rather that he's guilty and condemned. His ministry as an apostle is just about over. And because of this, he is concerned that Timothy will carry on the work that he has begun. He wants to remind Timothy that the most important duty that he has is to be faithful to the ministry of the word and to teach God's people to hold fast to the gospel at all costs, at all costs, even if it meant their lives. And so Paul says in verse 13, watch this, follow the pattern of sound words. Follow the pattern of sound words. The New American Standard says this, Retain the standard of, for, of, of sound words. The Greek term here, you know, you look at these two renderings of the beginning of this verse and you think, wow, they, there seems to be a significant difference. Why is that? The Greek term here is actually the verb to have. To have. And so if it's translated literally, I mean, it wouldn't make much sense to us. This is a common word that's used in different forms almost 800 times in the New Testament. In this case, however, it is a present active imperative, to have. Paul is commanding him to have. That, that doesn't strike a chord with us, does it? I mean, it's a command that requires continuous action. We don't, we don't think of having as a continuous action or a command that we can obey a literal translation might be this. Timothy, I command you to have and keep on having. To keep on having what you have. The problem is that that's not how we talk in modern English. It just, it just doesn't make sense to us. The translators, therefore, are put in a position of needing to find a verb that will communicate 
Paul's meaning, and so, hence, retain or follow is inserted here as the active imperative verb. It might also be translated, and I like this better, and this is what I'm going to use throughout. Hold on and keep on holding. Possess and keep on possessing, Timothy. Hold and keep on holding. Possess and keep on possessing the sound words. And Timothy had been taught the scriptures from his earliest years on the knee of his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, those faithful women who led their boy to Christ. And furthermore, he also attended the school of, of St. Paul Seminary. I mean, not that that was actually a seminary, but that he actually, he had traveled with Paul all over the known world. And he spent years traveling and learning from Paul. The apostle has been more than a little instrumental in forming Timothy's under, understanding of the word of God and how to wrestle with difficult questions and concerns from Scripture. And so Paul taught him, and he particularly taught him the details of the gospel. And so Paul is telling Timothy, retain and keep on retaining, possess and keep on possessing the precious, Christ-revealing, life-imparting treasures of God's Word. Don't let go of the treasure, Timothy. I've been carrying the treasure I've been sharing the treasure, I've given it to you, and I'm about to give it to you finally. Don't give up the treasure. And notice how Paul says it. Follow or retain the pattern of sound words. The word pattern here means sketch or outline. You kind of get the idea that in ancient times, an artist, before he painted something on a jar or something on the wall, like in Pompeii, he would first outline a sketch and, and then insert the basic shapes and locations of the key elements that he intends to paint on the wall or on the pot or whatever he's painting. The idea here is that Timothy should not think that it's up to him to figure out what needs to be taught in the churches. Paul has already sketched it out for him. Paul has already laid the boundary lines. In fact, if I might press the analogy a little further, Paul had already done much of the painting himself, but he wasn't going to be able to finish. And Timothy wouldn't be able to finish, and we have not been able to finish. But he was about to pass the baton over to Timothy to pick up where he left off. He was leaving Timothy to pick up where, where he had ended in terms of communicating the rich truths of divine revelation and especially the crown jewel of theology, namely the gospel. And notice the definite article here. I mean, there are no throwaway words in this opening verse. The definite article. Paul does not speak of a pattern. This is the pattern. It's not up to the preacher or Bible teacher to come up with some novel or clever idea of what the church should listen to or what they should learn. We don't have the freedom to bind people's conscience on the ideas of men. Our authority comes from Scripture. We don't have any other authority. If I tell you to do something and, and you ask me, can you demonstrate that from Scripture? If I can't, then you don't have to do it. If anybody 
tells you that you must do something that is contrary to the word of God, you don't have to do it. We must obey God rather than men. And the preacher's mandate is not to preach psychology. It's not a call to proclaim clever philosophy. He's not called to offer pointers on life hacking and self-help. He's called to preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. When you go over to the lands of Russia, which I've had the opportunity to do a number of occasions, on all of the older churches, not so much the newer ones, but in all of the older churches, on the front of the pulpit, it says, we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. I mean, they want, when you walk in through that back door, they want you to see the message. This is the treasure. This is the treasure. This is the crown jewel of the Bible. And so the preacher is commanded. He's called and commanded to stand before his people and require everyone to repent of their sins and transfer all their allegiance, all their loyalty over to God in Christ Jesus. He's called to invite men, women, boys, and girls in, into life, eternal life, found only in Jesus Christ. And it's the only part that always gets us in trouble. I mean, that was the hinge in the Reformation, the alone, the sola, that's what made the Reformation. I mean, in Catholic doctrine, they would say they believe that salvation is by grace through faith because of Christ. Is that what you believe? If you're Protestant, that's not what you believe. What you believe is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's the alone. It's the sola that always gets us in trouble. And now it's, it's not a problem between Protestants and Catholics, at least not in Texas and generally speaking in America. Now the tension is between what we believe from the word of God and a pluralistic society that demands that we're tolerant, that is, we accept as true anything that anyone says they believe is true. And if we don't, if we slip in the alone, if we say that the only way that you will ever get to heaven is through Jesus Christ then you will feel the pressure. Not only that, but the preacher, Timothy, is called to preach the whole counsel of God relative to everything pertaining to life and godliness found in the treasure of God's word. And by the way, just for the record, for those of you who have seen what's been going on with Andy Stanley calling the church to unhitch itself from the Old Testament, can I just say to you, if we don't have the Old Testament, we don't have the New Testament. Because almost everything in the New Testament is built on the foundation of what God was doing in the Old. And, and salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, through Old Testament future merits of Christ alone. Now, let's make another observation. Paul's telling Timothy to possess and keep on possessing what? Well, Paul says, keep possessing the pattern of sound words. Now, what does he mean by sound words? Sound words meaning healthy words or good words or true words. Well, since it's always best to let Scripture interpret Scripture, let's just flip back one page. Got your Bible open to uh, 2 Timothy 
turn back just one page, probably, and you'll find 1 Timothy chapter 6. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, here's what we read. Paul, here in his first letter to Timothy, says, so, so this is years earlier, and he says this to Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different, what's the next word? Doctrine, and does not agree with, what's the next? Sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up, etc. What is the sound words? This is helpful, isn't it? I mean, looking at a text like this, I mean, it just defines everything for us. It turns out this isn't the first time Paul exhorted Timothy about these things. And so, what are the sound words Timothy is supposed to teach? Well, they are the doctrines, the teachings, the truths that we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ, the truths that Paul specifically has received from Christ, and John has received from Christ, and Peter has received from Christ. And Paul touches on this again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, when he says this. He kind of summarizes this command by telling Timothy, this is another imperative verb, preach the word. What does that mean? It means preach the Bible and preach in particular the exclusive gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach the word, not a word that you think the Lord has directly given you, but rather the word of God as found in the pages of Holy Scripture. To the church in Galatia, Paul wrote this. Think about Paul Paul preaching a word that he received from Christ. I want to demonstrate this for you. To the church of Galatia, Paul wrote this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, turn back with me to First uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, and when you think of chapter fifteen, you think of resurrection, right? This is this is about this. Most of this chapter is about the resurrection, the promised resurrection, because Christ is raised, we will be raised. But before Paul gets into that, he says something relevant to our text this morning, chapter fifteen, verses one through ten. Listen to this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. By the way, there's a reference to the Old Testament. I mean, everything Paul had back then was the Old Testament. That's the scriptures he's talking about. It's the Old Testament. The Old Testament declared that Christ would die for our sins. Okay, that's not the main point I'm trying to get to here. But verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared, listen, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, both, uh, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. And then also to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. 
as well. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. It's Paul saying, you know that the Lord Jesus appeared after his resurrection to many people. And I want to tell you, after he got done appearing to the disciples, after he got done appearing to the women and to Peter and to the other apostles and to the 500, he also appeared to me. That's an explicit reference to Acts chapter 9, where Paul met him on the Damascus Road. Paul talks again later about his meeting with Jesus Christ even after that. He went to the school, the theology school, the seminary of Christ. And beloved, what Paul calls sound words, healthy words, true words, did not originate in his sophisticated, highly educated mind. No, he received it directly from Jesus Christ. These doctrines, this gospel, is the pattern of sound words. Paul had sketched for Timothy these patterns of sound words. And he did it, verse 13, notice, in faith and love. In faith and love. This is, this is the, you might say, the attitude with, with which he ministers these sound words. In faith, first of all, Paul taught and preached what he sincerely believed. That's what he means, I think. In faith, by the Holy Spirit, Paul only preached what he sincerely believed was true. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul writes this, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, again, in the Old Testament, and here's the quotation from the Old Testament, I believed and so I spoke, end quote, we also believe and so we speak. Paul, why are you preaching these things? Why are you risking your life for these things? And Paul's answering, are you kidding? I believe these things. I have no doubt in my mind that these things are true. And Paul was no Jonah. He didn't speak merely because he was under compulsion from God, under threat of being swallowed by a whale. No, to Paul, it was a great delight, great privilege to proclaim the gospel of Christ, even in the face of danger. Why? Because he truly believed it. He truly believed it. And so he taught it in faith, by the power of the Spirit, and, and secondly, in love. What, and Paul wasn't an angry preacher. He didn't hate the unbelievers. Again, he's not like Jonah. Jonah hated the Ninevites. He wanted them to experience God's judgment, not Paul. Paul said of the Jews, to whom he ministered first of all, he said, I, I wish I could bear their guilt in, my place, I mean, in their place. I wish I could die for them if it would save them. He didn't hate unbelievers. He had compassion toward them. He loved them. And isn't this how we should proclaim the gospel first? We believe. We believe with all sincerity in our own hearts. As it applies to our own souls, we exercise the very faith to which we call others, and then we proclaim it with bold love 
We proclaim it with bold love for the lost. We don't treat unbelievers like the enemy, no matter their political affiliation, their lifestyle, even their religion, or preferred gender association. Rather, we minister sound words of the gospel to them in personal faith and in genuine love. And perhaps you could kind of reverse engineer this and ask yourself, okay, why don't I share the gospel? It may be fear, and Paul's already dealt with that, and he'll deal with it again. But here's the first question. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe the gospel? You say, well, I'm a child of God. Of course I believe it. Yeah, but do you really believe it? Now, you're convinced you're a child of God. You, you're convinced you're saved. Do you really believe God can save a sinner? I mean, think of the person that you think is the most unlikely to ever become a Christian. By the way, Paul was 10 times more unlikely. Do you believe God can save them? Do you believe it? That may be part of the problem. You just don't believe that God can do this. Maybe you believe he did it for you, but it just is beyond your capacity at this point to believe that he could do it for someone else, which is a non sequitur, right? It's illogical. Or maybe it's not that you don't believe it. Maybe you believe in the gospel. Maybe you believe in the gospel's power, but you just don't love unbelievers. And they're just different. I mean, they're, they're, they're gender confused, or, or, or they're, they're a different... I mean, whenever we talk, they, they talk about their, their politics, and I talk about my politics, and it never ends well. I, I don't like those people. I don't love those people. They have different ideas. They're from a different religion. They're from a different part of the world. They're from a different culture. Maybe they have a different skin color. I don't like them. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you just don't love believers, uh, unbelievers. You know, if that's the case with you, it's, it's good to start with confession. Either I don't believe it or I don't love them. But it should follow with Repentance. Confess it to the Lord. Ask him to change you. Put yourself in reasonable proximity with someone that, that you don't normally affiliate with because, you, you know, you're just not drawn to that. You don't like them. And go love them. Go love them. I would dare say that the first power of the gospel is the power of your love for them. You love them. Love them, love them, love them. And when they see the love of Christ in you and in your church, your friends, as they minister to that person, as so many times at Calvary Bible Church over the years, uh, we have had occasions where an unbeliever loses a loved one or they come, you know, they're, they're in the hospital, they're in a car wreck, or they have some significant need, and, and they tell me later, hey, pastor, some woman just showed up at my door introduced herself with her children, lots of them, <laughs> and delivered to me a meal. What's that about? And I said, I always say, listen, they, they can't help themselves. They love Jesus. So they love you. You have a need. This is what Christ in us does. We love people. We serve them. We put their interests ahead of our own for the glory of Christ. And you know what? They don't see that in the world. They don't see that from their, usually from their workmates. But they'll see Christ in you. And by the way, this isn't the, 
This isn't relevant only to our ministry of the gospel. It's relevant to teaching and preaching all the doctrines of the Bible, all of the sound words of Scripture. We don't soft-pedal sound doctrine under the guise of love and acceptance and and tolerance. We don't capitulate the the hard sayings of Jesus or the difficult teaching of the apostle Paul in the name of grace. Even when it comes to the precious doctrines of election and calling, we strive to be unyielding but always loving, always loving. That's why if you visited our website recently, or not recently, it's been on there for as long as we've had a website, you will find a description of Calvary Bible Church that says this, we are lovingly reformed. And now notice verse 14. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul continues in the same vein here. First, he commands Timothy to possess and keep on possessing the pattern of sound words. And now he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. To guard means to protect, to to take careful measure, to guard from corruption or destruction. That's what we need to do with the word of God. It's like guarding the the crown jewels. It's like uh, 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 um, uh, guarding a treasure. We guard the truth. We defend the truth. We stand upon the truth. We show deference when it comes to personal desires and inclinations, but we are unyielding with the truth, especially the truth of the gospel. And our ultimate model of this, of course, is the Lord Jesus himself, who on the one hand was willing to lay down his life for sinners, and on the other, he never once ever compromised on the truth. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, Paul says, we are assigned the duty of guarding the truth. And notice the term Paul gives the truth here. He calls it the good deposit. Guard the good deposit. The NAS says, the treasure. Guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you. I love that translation because that's what the word of God is for us. It's the treasure, the treasure. You've heard stories about back in communist Russia when they would kick the, the, the guards would come and kick the doors open and they would try to find the Bible. You've probably heard me talk about Daniel Wong out at Master's College, teaches theology there, who was part of the persecuted church. He saw his brother beaten to death by the Red Guard because they came and, and ransacked the house looking for their Bible and ended up killing the boy because the parents were unwilling to give up their Bible And you know what? That's happening in China today. Uh, Today, you know what they're doing this very day? They're kicking open doors. And if they go into your house, I read the story about an old man who was was on on, um, the equivalent of welfare for us. And the guards kicked open the door. They saw a cross hanging on the wall. And they told told this man, uh, take down the cross and hang the photograph of our emperor, president, in its place. And if you don't, your, your money will be cut off. I mean, it's the equivalent of saying, deny Christ or you're on your own. The suffering continues. 
the suffering continues. And yet time and again, time and again, those who know the word of God and who genuinely believe in Christ and, and, are, and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in their heart, they know these things. They know the truth found in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and they refuse to repent, recant of what they believe. And this is completely relevant for our generation. In our time, the evangelical church has all but completely thrown sound doctrine overboard. And you talk about doctrine, and they'll say, that's divisive, that's divisive, that's divisive. Well, in a sense, that's true. It does divide. Doctrine does divide. It, it distinguishes between that which is true and that which is false. Well, that's divisive, and except today the, the, the popular term is, oh, that's legalistic. That's legalistic. That's unloving. It's legalistic. It's not legalistic. This is obedience. But anytime you mention obedience in some Christian circles, that gets translated legalism. And yet the early Christians didn't believe that. And hardly any Christians I've known through the years. But the church is throwing sound doctrine overboard. You know what the church needs more than anything else in, 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 in our time? We need discernment. And we are not going to have discernment without doctrine. You, because you can't distinguish between what is right and what is wrong without the truth of, of the Bible. So this is relevant for us. And we don't throw away the treasure of the doctrine and why do people do that? Well, because that's not what the majority of churchgoers want. They want positive thinking. They want to know how to be rescued from toxic relationships, whatever they are. And they want someone to tell them that they have potential. But listen, every Christian's job is to guard the truth. Every pastor's job is to guard the truth. Every church's job is to guard the truth. And if we don't, we are in danger of losing, giving away the treasure. Apart from sound words, apart from the treasure of God's word, we don't have a church. All we have is a crowd. And the crowd may get bigger and bigger, and we may need to build bigger and builder, uh, big, build bigger and bigger buildings. Too many bees. But you know what? If we don't have sound doctrine, we don't have a church. All we have is a crowd. All we have is a crowd, and, and there is a big difference. The sound words of God are the treasure of the church. And apart from Christ himself, there is nothing we love more. In fact, apart from the sound words of Scripture, we know nothing about Christ. Do you realize that? We only know Christ through the Scriptures. So how do we guard the treasure how do we guard the crown jewel of Christianity? How do we guard the gospel? Well, here's how we guard it. We read the word. We sing the word. We study the word. We pray the word. We preach the word. We rest in the word. We obey the word. We meditate on the word. And we talk to people about the word. And where there's agreement, we rejoice. Where there is error, we gently and lovingly correct. And we do it in peace as much as we possibly can. And as you share the treasure of the gospel with others, you're going to discover something. As you become known as one who 
clings to the gospel of Christ and to the essential truths of the Bible, all of the truths of the Bible, what you're going to find is that your friends are going to divide into two categories. Um, and they're going to be those who love it and accept it and those who will give lip service to it and then reject it. And you're going to feel the pressure. You'll make your coworkers uncomfortable talking about this, talking about your love for Christ and love for the Bible. You start sharing your testimony with how God has changed your life through Christ, you're going to make people really uncomfortable. And the pressure will be on. And your relatives might call you a fanatic. You might lose friendships and miss out on invitations to social gatherings, not because you're legalistic or combative or arrogant. Never be that. Never, ever be that. But because your faith in Christ and your love for people compels you to tell the truth. To tell the truth. And as you live for the truth, you'll find that your friends are going are gonna to fall into these two groups, those who cling to the truth and govern their lives by it, and those who compromise and defect from the truth. And that brings us to the second and final point. The first was guard the truth courageously, and, and, and secondly, and briefly, choose your friendships wisely. Look at verses 15 through 18. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Vigilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the house of, I always say, Anesiphorus. I think it's Anesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service he rendered in Ephesus. Onesiphorus was a faithful brother. He was apparently a wealthy brother, some think, because he had a, uh, apparently a large household. He probably had a large house. He may have had a successful business, maybe like Lydia and maybe the reason that he went for, to Rome was to carry on business, or maybe he heard that Paul was in trouble and he intentionally just went to Rome to find him. In either case, he was a faithful, faithful brother. When Paul was called to stand trial, however, those who should have been by his side, all of them abandoned him. And I suspect they were fearful of being implicated in his so-called crimes against the state, this man who had led so many to Christ as he ministered from Ephesus in Asia, and this beloved apostle to whom many, no doubt, feigned allegiance, when the pressure was on, when persecution struck, they ran for their lives, and they left him alone. And just as the disciples all abandoned Jesus at his arrest, two of these men had their names recorded in the permanent record of Scripture, how would you like to have your well-known sin be well-known for the rest of time? Their names are Figilus and Hermogenes. We don't know anything about these two men. And the only thing we know about these men is their defection. Their defection from Paul when he needed them. How would you like to have that etched in your tombstone? traitor, defector. If God revealed to you 
that he was going to, to name you in Holy Scripture using 75 characters or less. And what would you hope he would say about you? Well, I hope he would, he would use more than 75 characters. And I would hope that he would say something like what is recorded here of the next man whose name is Onesiphorus. Here is a faithful brother. And there's more than 75 characters here. And, the, and I won't read it all again, but the main point here is that he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. He didn't make excuses for avoiding Paul because it was embarrassing to be seen with a criminal. Rather, when he went to Rome, he determined to do whatever it took to find him. And in my reading, it, it seems that finding the apostle would not have been easy. But he did. He pushed forward until he found him. Here was a faithful slave, a faithful servant. Here was a loyal friend. And the message to Timothy, remember, Paul is writing this to Timothy. Why is he saying this to Timothy? Hey, Onesiphorus, faithful guy, wasn't ashamed of my chains. He came looking for me until he found me. Get the hint? Paul is saying, Timothy, be like Onesiphorus, not like those other guys. And by the way, I know that's what Paul is thinking here because back in verse 8, he says this explicitly, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me. And here he says, he was not ashamed of my chains. Timothy, Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed. I need you. I love you. I long to see you. Would you come to me? Search for me. Find me. Don't let me down. And for us, the message is, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And don't capitulate on sound doctrine. Christians love sound doctrine. Why? Because we love the Bible. We love the truth. It's the truth that brings us to Christ. It's the truth that enables us to commune with God. It's the truth that reveals the Father's will for us. It's the truth that fills us with wisdom for life. It's the truth that reveals mysteries that God unveils only to his children. It's the truth that makes us wiser than our teachers and our enemies. It is the truth that teaches us how to love. It's the truth that reveals how two sinners can stay happily married for a lifetime. You'll only get that in the Bible. It's the truth that instructs us on raising children, managing money, responding to evil, and 10,000 other things. No wonder Paul calls it the treasure. It's the treasure that will give you wisdom beyond your years. The sad reality is Adam and Eve failed to guard the treasure of God's word. That's how we ended up in this mess. Israel failed to guard the treasure of God's word. That's why they came under judgment. Christians in medieval times didn't guard the treasure of God's word. That's why there needed to be a reformation. The mainline denominations failed to guard the treasure of God's word. That's why they are, they are bordering extinction. And this, if you don't think this is a slippery slope, then you may not know where Methodism was a couple hundred years ago. 
in its faithfulness, in its transforming of a culture, this culture. It was those people. It was the Wesleys, and it was, it was George Whitfield, the Methodists, who came and preached Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And now they are about to be thrown onto the ash heap of history. Just last night, as I was walking my dog in the dark, um, having just finished my sermon, and my earphones in, I was listening to um, the briefing, right? With, um, what's his name? Al Mohler. <laughs> With Al Mohler. And the whole program was about a woman pastor who'd been three times married in the Church of Canada who announced that she was an atheist and wanted to remain on as a pastor. And so the church formed a heresy committee to defrock her, but after doing a cost-benefit analysis, they determined that it would be more harmful to have negative publicity than it would be to remove her from the church. And the, really, in the name of tolerance, the amazing thing is when she announced she was atheist and didn't believe in a God and therefore doesn't believe in the Bible, she lays all of this out very bluntly, very carefully. She had a, a church of 150 people. When she announced this, a hundred of them left. How's that for becoming relevant? The more you pursue relevance and connections with a wicked culture, the more irrelevant you become. And they don't get it. In, in light of all of the statistics and the reality that right down the street here, <laughs> that, that, that anchor of Camp Bowie, the Presbyterian PCUSA church has just been bulldozed. Why? Well, it's not because anybody's out to get them. It was just an empty building. Listen, what our country needs is not more tolerance. They need the truth. They need it delivered in faith and in love. They need the truth. They need to see it in your love. They need to see it in your life. They need to say it in how you, how you minister to one another and, and to your neighbors. Oh, my friends, do you have a Bible? Do you read the Bible? Do you study the Bible? Do you feel that it is life and breath and wisdom and living? And does it drive you into communion with Christ and repentance from sin and love for people? Is it your treasure? And is the gospel the crown jewels? And your understanding of doctrine, oh, beloved, may God give us the grace and power by his spirit to retain the pattern of sound words and to guard the treasure, the good deposit, until he comes and finds us faithful. Let's pray. Lord, these are certainly not happy, slappy truths, and they are contrary to the ambient atmosphere of the world right now. But we believe them. We believe, therefore, 
we preach. Therefore, we speak. Therefore, we live. We believe. Therefore, we love. And Father, I pray that you would help us as a small church, that we would have some small impact on this community for the sake of the gospel. I say small, but I pray that it would be bigger than, than it's ever been with Calvary Bible Church. As we have the courage to speak to people about the truth we so love, about the Christ we so love. Lord, we are unworthy for such an assignment, such a mission, but we receive it and we ask you to bless it in the name of our Savior Jesus.